Blog Talk Radio. Greetings. Thank you for joining me, Attorney Sherry Jefferson, on Live with Sherry, as we discuss this special episode entitled Corrupt Georgia Lawyers No Longer Chasing Ambulance Services. Now, the new tool for illegal practices is the use of private citizen warrants. I have been excitedly looking forward to presenting this episode, and it will be part of a series in the upcoming weeks, which will give more detail-oriented information as it pertains to the actual lawyers around the state of Georgia who are engaging in these practices, their clients, the type of cases that they're attempting to present, judges that are associated with the cases, those who dismiss, those who grant, and the police departments that are involved in falsifying police reports, individuals who are associated with individuals within police departments, etc. Why is this show important, one may ask? For more than 25 years, the state of Georgia, through the State Bar of Georgia, its Office of General Counsel, members of law enforcement, including local, state, and federal agents, as well as the Georgia General Assembly, knew that many attorneys were using what was referred to as quote-unquote runners. Since the late 80s, early 90s, these runners or individuals who were retained and hired by lawyers and law firms were sent into inner-city communities and suburban communities initially to engage in setting up car accidents. Or you would find these individuals at car accidents and wondered how they got there. Many of them would use CDs or other electronic surveillance equipment that will enable them to know when police would be in a call to a particular scene or members of the EMS or paramedic force and or when these individuals reached the hospital. They had individuals that were employed in the records department inside of local police departments, Atlanta, Fulton, DeKalb, smaller counties and jurisdictions from Bibb and Houston to Chatham County, in Savannah to Richmond County and Augusta, etc. And this practice was widespread throughout the 159 counties of the state of Georgia. But what was unique was that the entities of the State Bar of Georgia, the legislative division of the State Bar of Georgia, which is a mandatory membership agency, unlike most jurisdictions around the country, along with members of law enforcement and the General Assembly, almost sat silent for years and did not do anything in terms of trying to move forward with legislation and or addressing it from a professional conduct under Rule 7.3. Yes, I say they sat quiet because it took 23 to 25 years or more before the Georgia General Assembly finally drafted, introduced, and would pass legislation to change that practice and make it unethical and illegal under the Bill uh, 332453. That passed in 2014, and Governor Nathan Dill signed it into law. And I question, with the new tool that's being used by those very same unscrupulous attorneys, it's the same core group with the same mentality of fraud, finding and procuring clientele, and securing money the easy way as possible. Many people don't recognize that during the course of those 25 years of using runners, it adversely affected the Georgia economy as a whole because you were literally defrauding the auto insurance industry because they were paying on some claims that were frivolous based on accidents that were fraudulent. And where the accident was a legitimate accident, these were attorneys that were exploiting the victims with doctors and chiropractors. 
And in the end, these victims were the ones to receive the least amount of money because of the proceeds that were being made, the 33 to 40% for the attorney, unnecessary medical bills and services for the doctors and the chiropractors. So by the time the victim actually receives compensation, there was little to no money at all. So you defrauded the auto insurance company. You were defrauding the health care sector, even Medicaid, because where these individuals were uninsured and there may have been no coverage to uninsured motorist protection or insufficient, these individuals either had to now use or wait to be sued and recover from the suit monies to cover their health coverage, or if they had government backing through Medicaid, those companies were to come in and pay and then try to subrogate the claims thereafter. So in other words, Medicaid would pay for individuals that were indigent. We also call it peach care in the state of Georgia, government-backed health care, and then your insurance company would attempt to subrogate or the attorney would be required to subrogate or take a lien to pay them back. So this was just an ongoing abusive practice. How did these individuals know and or have access to this information? Because it was widespread abuse, widespread fraud. Why did it take the State Bar of Georgia, its Office of General Counsel, law enforcement, and the Georgia General Assembly 25 years to finally recognize the practice of running? And what are they going to do and how long is it going to take them to recognize the abusive practice of using private citizen warrants? We'll talk about that more when we return. Joining me, Sherry, on Live with Sherry, as we discuss today's episode, corrupt Georgia lawyers no longer chasing the ambulance, and now the private citizen warrant is the new tool. Georgia, like a very few states, has a code section, OCGA 17440, that prescribes in pertinent part or authorizes private citizens to execute or initiate criminal charges against other citizens. While the United States Supreme Court has long held in Linda R.S. versus Richard D., a case from the 1970s, the Supreme Court made it very clear that private citizens should not be vested with the authority or lack cognitive, judicially co uh, cognitive interest in prosecuting or non-prosecution. Bottom line, we should have no role in that. It is strictly a government role, duty, and responsibility. But for some unknown reason, over the years since that case, there have been a growing number of states that have attempted, particularly in the seven southern states, to afford their residents an opportunity to initiate criminal proceedings. Most recent, many jurisdictions like Tennessee have found such an abuse of the practice that not only did they issue a moratorium and a directive, but during that time they repealed and amended Portions of that legislation, which now only allows for private citizens to present to judicial officers or the magistrate a complaint asserting violations of penal interest or the law, and in exchange receive nothing more than a summons. Georgia has not yet taken that approach. What we have found since 2014 is that there have been a growing number and increase of attorneys who are aiding and abetting their clients 
in an effort to procure clientele to secure and initiate private citizen warrants in an effort to gain leverage in civil proceedings. So where you have made a notice of intent to sue someone or a command and you were unsuccessful in doing that as an unscrupulous attorney, you then would direct your client to secure a private citizen warrant. And this is how it works in Georgia. You would go to the magistrate court. You, for a fee of $20 in some jurisdictions or counties, you would complete a pre-warrant application. Throughout the state of Georgia, that application does not have uniformity. So it varies from county to county, which is problem number one. In the absence of uniformity, each county now allows for his or her own judge to make a decision. One of the problems with the application is it doesn't require you to meet a four-corner requirement to justify a warrant. The Supreme Court held in the Ramsey case, Ramirez case, that a search warrant must have or satisfy the four corners, dates, times, detailed information, elements of the crime in which the person is being accused of. Under 17.4 and 40 in the state of Georgia, they lack that provision in the code section so that unlike the requirement for police officers to secure search warrants and other warrants for arrest, the private citizen, there is no clause that requires them to meet the same mandate. And just because these individuals are proceeding pro se with the attorneys tossing the stone and hiding the hands behind them and providing them with documentation that they need in furtherance of getting the warrant, there should be no loophole or seam that allows for them to violate or to interfere with due process issues. Notice, and notice isn't simply receiving a date, time, and location. Notice is being afforded an opportunity to know what the allegations against you are so that you can properly prepare as the accused. So the code section does not have that stated within the ambit of the code section. And by it not being in there, it is constitutionally void for vagueness because it violates provisions of due process. That being said, once those applications are completed, the county only concern is securing the $20. They are then required by statute to provide the last known address. And in 90% of the jurisdictions that we've been researching so far, most of the courts will generally prescribe on their own that if that notice is returned, they will not conduct a hearing, period. This is what, we, what we've been looking at. But there's a great many of them, and I said 90%, it's just the opposite, excuse me. There are many, but there's a lot of jurisdictions that if the notice is returned as undeliverable, the judges then at their own discretion make a determination as to whether or not notice could be perfected some other way. And I respectfully submit that that violates the due process clause and equally makes the statute constitutionally void for vagueness because it is a due process issue where notice and how notice is effectuated would be left to the discretion of a judge. In the state of Georgia, the Supreme Court had, in a case of Williams versus Russo, and in Williams versus Russo, the, the court tries to outline some of the safeguards that OCGA 17.4 and 40 prescribes, and I respectfully state that it's inaccurate because it uses terms like, while it is attempting to notify a judge by any means approved by the judge, reasonably calculated to apprise a person of a date, time, and location. Here's the problem. 
you can have an abuse of discretion by the court. Nowhere in the history of any Supreme Court ruling that it pertains to any criminality, any attempt to subject an individual to an arrest and or detention or to accuse an individual of committing a crime, does it allow for a judge to be given that much discretion and or power? That is a due process issue because the statute is not cl- doesn't get clarity. OCGA 17.4 and 40 is technically a criminal statute, and it doesn't get clarity. And these statutes are supposed to be strictly interpreted. So what actually is the definition of attempting to give notice? You can't attempt to give a person notice of the opportunity to appear before a court to answer to the possibilities of being arrested. What is by any means approved? So that will vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, from judge to judge, based on one's social, economic, or political status. That is void for vagueness. What is reasonably calculated? A horse and a mule bringing it to the front door of the person? A police officer delivering it? And most of all of the other statutes that pertain to notice, we've read about every single one of them. They are very specific with statutory notice, certified mail, return receipt, by registered U.S. mail. It's never left to the discretion of a judge. And where you do that, you open the door for arbitrary and discriminatory applications. And in many jurisdictions, that's exactly the outcome that you're going to receive. A statute that is so vague and or threatening to constitutionally protected activity makes it void. So where you leave that door open, you then have unscrupulous attorneys who walk in that door and say, I have a claim for defamation of character. I've sent you a notice of intent to sue. I've been unsuccessful in ascertaining the results that I want to ascertain. And therefore, I'm going to aid and abet my client to go to the county to take out a pre arrest warrant application, and I'm going to use that to intimidate and to threaten you to comply with my wishes. And that is unscrupulous. If you are a legitimate attorney and you are an effective and zealous advocate, and zealous and aggressive have two different meanings. People who tend to be aggressive are generally incompetent and ineffective. Those who are zealous are generally competent and effective and knowledgeable attorneys. Where you know that you have a civil claim, you don't need to threaten criminal liability thereafter. And the problem with the code section is that 17.4 and 40, neither that nor the application, have you to state, is this a pending criminal matter? Are there pending civil matters? Has there been any notice of intent to sue? Has there been any demand for money? Where you've made any of those the court should immediately decline to even review or consider that application for criminal charges because at that point in time, it is clear that it is being used for a purpose other than what it is intended. And in many regards, they know that there's no criminal act whatsoever. And so where there isn't any, you're hoping to utilize this particular warrant process in an effort to threaten, intimidate, harass, and humiliate, embarrass, and force this individual to comply with your demand. And where a judge or a lawyer allows for that to transpire, 
then it invokes professional responsibility under Rule 7.3 to name just one of a few under the state bar and the ABA standards. It is totally unethical. Where you have an individual who owns a club in the metro area and some of their employees get into a verbal or physical altercation with the club owner, and they then videotape it, and then they make a demand to that club owner for monetary compensation, and he barks at them, like, really, you're not going to receive a dime. And where that individual, rightfully so, awaits to be sued in a civil setting to handle the matter civility, with civility and allow for the process to take its course accordingly, and then the attorney advises those employees take out a private citizen warrant, initiate criminal charges. Well, you go from a civil claim of battery to now a criminal claim of battery, but you only raise this after threatening civil action. So when that individual does that and the individual has to respond to it, now you're basically saying, well, we now have you where we want you, and the leverage that you think you have is that individuals like that business owner is going to fall prey to being victimized. And I respectfully state that the citizens of the state of Georgia, like the rest of the country, are not going to be inclined to sit on their hands and sit idle for 25 years like the state bar and law enforcement and the General Assembly did, waiting for somebody to do something to correct the problem. No, what's going to happen, the citizens of the state of Georgia are going to react and act out in accordance. So you're no longer going to have an issue of runners being used to chase ambulatory services. You're going to end up eventually finding the very same people who are abusing this process, the attorneys and their clients, who are going to end up having hitters. Because people are not going to sit idle and allow for you to interfere with their livelihood, to subject them to arrest and detention, knowing that it's falsified, knowing that it's illegal, and then you just don't show up for a hearing after they've been arrested. Like, well, the charges will be dismissed at that point in time. How can Georgia correct some of these unscrupulous acts committed by these attorneys in an effort to gain leverage? in civil matters or to be threatening, intimidating, harassing, and to try to embarrass a person into a settlement or a compromise. We can abolish the right of a private citizen to initiate criminal charges, period. Or we can offer a summons proceeding that would ultimately lead to a citation. Why? Because in many regards, these individuals have already gone to the police in an effort to have an, a police report prepared. And what we're finding is just the same way we had to amend OCGA 3324 and 53 to stop the ambulatory chasing processes and the unethical acts of lawyers and doctors. The flip side of it is this. If you don't get something when you take it away, you end up with these types of individuals who act like cockroaches at night who come out trying to pray and get whatever it is they can get. Most of these attorneys have virtual law offices. They don't have their own environment or structures. Many of them are struggling general practitioners who claim that they may practice in a specific field, but the fact of the matter is they have everything advertised on their websites from slip and fall, personal injuries, to open record tax, and a host of others. 
We have examined the last five applications that we reviewed just in the last two, three weeks, and all of those attorneys had that one thing in common. Facebook, instead of a website, a man-made type website. What I mean by man-made is the ones we laugh about. It's the ones you just sort of throw together. No rhyme, no reason. It's a single-person operation, virtual law office or a mailbox law office where they're trying to scuffle and struggle in an effort to attain clientele by any means necessary, a disgrace to the profession at best. And the request would be that if you're not going to amend or repeal, then you basically abolish. If you're not willing to abolish the right of a private citizen to initiate criminal charges, then this is some of the things you must consider. That if you have the application, it must be uniform for the entire 159 counties. That the notice provision does not leave a discretion for judges that violates due process, that is otherwise constitutionally void for vagueness. That it doesn't have terms like attempted by any means, reasonably, but that it requires and meets the statutory provisions for notice. Certified registered U.S. mail. If you're going to subject a person to arrest, you don't simply need to know a last known address because I know in many regards they'll give the wrong address purposely so that you don't get notice. And even when notice would be returned, they would still go forward with the hearing. So the language of the statute shall clearly state that unless it's domestic violence, that unless it's a deadly act, and if it is that, you don't need to bypass law enforcement. But if you're going to try to procure this application and move forward on your own, you must certify and provide a certified copy of a police report that you filed. And that officer must be the subject of being subpoenaed to appear and testify at that pre-warrant hearing before the court. That other professions are equally protected as school administrators and law enforcement are. So that all of these matters are heard by the Superior Court judges because it is a private citizen warrant that is being initiated. Let the magistrate court deal with what they generally deal with. Incompetence or not, they deal with the law enforcement aspect of it. They issue the search warrants and those warrants. But if you're going to now say we're going to authorize a private citizen to do so, there are constitutional safeguards that must be afforded to those individuals. And that can only come by individuals in state or superior court, not someone in a magistrate court position. In many jurisdictions around the state of Georgia, the 159 counties, a lot of the MAG judges don't even have law degrees, and they're not required to do so, just like the probate. So you might get someone doing Billy Bob a favor, somebody looking out for Jerome and Shaniqua. Yeah, I said it, just the way I said it, Billy Bob, Jerome and Shaniqua. You might get those kind of characters on the bench. Not every person who practices law are scrupulous individuals. You've got many who have this hood rat ghetto mentality, and they bring that to the practice of law, that street hustle and flow mentality, that this is how we can get him or her. When you're a scrupulous ethical attorney, you follow the letter of the law. You don't try and slide on the side of it. You don't look for a seam. Because the fact of the matter is you're going to run across the Sherry Jeffersons of the world who are not going to be afraid of the fact that you're taking out private citizen warrants. You might run across someone with the Murray Law Firm who's been very proactive in stopping individuals from engaging in ambulatory chasing because he doesn't want the profession disgraced. So there's a lot of lawyers that stand down and say enough is enough. We're not going to tolerate this. It is already.
already difficult in and of itself for most of us who are law-abiding citizens to remain that way. But here's the thing. If y'all guys continue doing that, the only law-abiding citizens you're going to start encountering are the ones that's part of the Jamie Foxx movie. We'll be back. Give you some time to think about it. Thank you for joining me on Live with Sherry as we discuss today's special episode, Corrupt Georgia Lawyers, those who are no longer chasing the ambulance but are now using private citizen warrants as a tool. At the break, I said, you have to be careful because while there are many law-abiding citizens, if lawyers are allowed and authorized to continue to engage in this violation, these illegal, unethical, fraudulent, and abusive practices, with the help of members of law enforcement to devise falsified police reports and then the attorneys encourage their clients to falsify documents before the court and alter and modify and change them and purposefully get wrong mailing addresses so that the person who's being accused doesn't have notice. If they're going to be allowed to go forward with this, you're not going to deal with regular law-abiding citizens. You're going to end up encountering the law-abiding citizens like the movie Jamie Foxx where people are going to say enough is enough. And this is particularly true where individuals are going to read and learn how long it took Georgia to resolve an abusive practice where people that were in the hospital were being exploited by runners. And the bar didn't know that. Law enforcement didn't know that. The General Assembly didn't know that. What are the things that can be done to effectuate this type of change? a monitorium and a directed by the governor, Nathan Deal. He has been very proactive in addressing criminal reform, so much so that senators like Rand Paul, who's now a candidate for 2016, and then Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy and a host of others, Berner out of Michigan, and a lot of others from around the country are watching what Georgia is doing. So as they watch, allow them to be able to watch, listen, and learn, and then be able to apply. Why are we saying we're reforming criminal justice system when we're still leaving loopholes and scenes open for individuals to subject people to arrest? And here's the scenario. If you're going to utilize an opportunity to allow private citizens to initiate criminal acts against private citizens, then you have to afford other safeguards. So the burden of persuasion, which generally is probable cause, should be changed so that if the private citizen is attempting to execute the warrant, at that stage it should fall under possibly maybe a civil standard or a higher standard of clear and convincing or preponderance of the um, evidence, by preponderance of the evidence. Because once that person is arrested, it is no different than a conviction as far as their records are concerned. Surely people can get expungements and eradication. But for many people who have to look for employment opportunities, it is still a stain against them, particularly true where despite the reform, many industries are still stating, even if you've had an expungement, you have to acknowledge it. So where many people that are victimized are also business owners, there's a host of others that are not. How do you protect that segment of society who are being wrongfully accused? You don't simply get to use it as a process and then turn around and say, well, we're going to dismiss the charge. We were just trying to send a message. The only message that's going to end up being sent is one to you. Trust that, you know? Nobody's going to let you think you're going to arrest them and get away with it. That doesn't happen in the real world. It just doesn't happen. 
It just doesn't happen. And while you think you may not be in the reach of a lot of people, a lot of people are gifted with the knowledge and the intelligence and the intellect and the skill of the late Chris Cow. The late Chris Cow, if you don't know who he is, it's American Sniper. And that man had the ability to wait it out and catch people from miles away. That was a gift that he had. In other words, you're not going to be able to go around and do what you're doing and it not catch up with you. That's the point. So either the State Board, Georgia Office of General Counsel, law enforcement, or the General Assembly has to act, or you're going to end up approaching and engaging in an act against an innocent person who's going to pretty much have had enough, and they're not going to tolerate it. We are going to revisit this issue next week and be more detailed concerning the actual attorneys that are involved in these practices, where they're located and what they're doing. Call them out because it is aiding and abetting their quote-unquote clients to falsify police reports, engage in purge testimony, and to otherwise use criminal measures for matters that were originally submission, submitted as civil and then use that to gain leverage. And that's a professional conduct issue, but it's also a criminal issue. No one should be the subject of an arrest. No one should have to engage these types of lawyers. They should not be practicing. They just shouldn't. And they're unethical, they're incompetent, and they have the mentality of ghetto, hood rat cockroaches. Thank you for joining me on Blog Talk Radio.